0: I went to school with a lot of folks whose main focus was to get that job on Bay Street, and my main focus was to set up a poverty law clinic and be paid in chickens. What I thought I was going to do was be a lawyer who would, would stand up for folks who didn't couldn't otherwise get access to justice. But on the provincial level, I don't know if there's another female official opposition leader in terms of who's even waiting in the wings. You know, it's not like this... this all-male Bachelor uh, episode uh, is going to end anytime soon.
1: It's Kate Graham here. Welcome back to No Second Chances, a Canada 2020 podcast about women in our most senior political roles. Over the past few weeks, you've heard directly from the women who've led our provinces, territories, and federal government. But as I mentioned last week, there are a few women you haven't heard from as much or at all sometimes because of conflicting schedules or travel delays, and in one case, well, because she was busy running a province. When we started this project, Canada had one female First Minister, the Premier of Alberta, and today, we have none. So there's no one better to tell us what happened than the last woman standing. Today, we're thrilled to present the Rachel Notley story. (laughs) I was
0: born in Edmonton, and, uh, and I often tell people that uh, I was, I think, almost a month old before my dad met me, uh, because he was off managing a campaign in Saskatchewan uh, when I was born. Uh, he was, at that point, uh, the provincial secretary for the Alberta NDP. And um, uh, so, um, I guess it's fair to say that politics has been there from, from day one. And then we moved up uh, about six hours north of Edmonton when my dad ended up winning by uh, just 50 votes, um, uh, riding uh, in the very northwest part of Alberta. And so from the time that I was seven onwards, uh, I lived in this very small uh, rural community. Uh, Fairview was about 2,000 people. Uh, and then when I was about I don't know, 11 or 12, we moved from town out to uh, an acreage uh, overlooking, or a quarter section, actually, overlooking the Peace River Valley. And uh, and so I basically, for all intents and purposes, uh, lived, well, not on a farm, but in the country, had horses, the, rode the school bus, the whole thing. Because we were so far away, my dad uh, was away for, you know, most, I'd say he'd come home uh, three, two to three times a month, um, and uh, then of course when he was home, I'd be watching him run around, respond to. Uh, um concerns of constituents like literally getting a call late at night and rushing off to help somebody fix their fence because the Department of Transportation had uh, knocked it down and their cattle was running free and all that kind of stuff um, and and so I definitely saw public service through those uh, through those eyes um, but I also saw uh, even as he was only throughout almost all of his career one person in our party standing up against a, a seemingly all-powerful uh, conservative party I also saw the uh, the um, integrity with which he worked, the degree to which um, uh, the idea of standing up for uh, democratic socialist values uh, drove him. Uh, when I was very young, uh, about five, my mom described what it was my dad did by you know telling me the story of Robin Hood and just basically saying your dad is Robin Hood. You know, he wants he wants uh, people with less. Uh, to be able to get their fair share. And he doesn't want them to be taken to the cleaners by people who have more power and more money. And, uh, and so that's, that was what I was uh, uh, raised with. And then my mom, of course, was also not uh, an elected politician, but certainly a social justice activist. And that uh, permeated everything that, that she did as well. And so, uh, the long and the short of it is, is between my dad and my mom, uh, I was raised in a household that that valued um, uh, activism, uh, valued social justice activism, and defined the act of doing everything you can to make life better for people who didn't otherwise have a voice as being the noble thing, um, and, and that you didn't measure um, the uh, decision to try against the uh, likelihood of success. You just understood that the decision to try was the right decision.
1: This childhood lesson about doing the right thing, not the easy thing, is something that Rachel Notley embraced throughout her career.
0: I used to joke around, uh, I went to school at Osgoode and uh, went to school with a lot of folks whose main focus was to get that job on Bay Street and my main focus was to set up a poverty law clinic and be paid in chickens. And, um, and, and so what I thought I was going to do was was uh, be that, uh, you know, be a lawyer who would, would stand up for folks who didn't, couldn't otherwise get access to justice. And, and so I wanted to be an activist, but I didn't necessarily see myself being a politician.
1: So what changed then?
0: You know, my dad died in a very tragic and public um accident and uh and so and I was 21 at the time and it took almost no time for people to start coming to me saying, "Oh, well, when when are you going to get involved? When are you going to do something?" And uh and so there was uh, almost from day one, this, this sort of pressure amongst, uh, uh, new Democrats for me to consider running and, uh, and, um, becoming involved electorally. And I mostly dismissed it. Um, what changed was, uh, I got the opportunity to work in politics, both during, uh, the later part of my university years. And, um, and then after I became a lawyer and, uh, so the, and, and that gave me an opportunity to see, first of all, that it's fun, um, and secondly, that you have the potential to make much more change much more quickly. In politics, if you actually get into a position of power, and and then again as a lawyer, I mean, I was doing labor law and doing workers' rights uh, and and um, and poverty law to some degree, and uh, you quickly learn that you can have the same do the same case over and over and over and over, and even be very successful at it, which often I was, uh, and and fix problems on a case-by-case basis, or you can just change the darn law so stupid, stupid things stop happening. And, and so, again, it's that issue of the, the um, really concentrated amount of agency that comes from, from actually achieving uh, political
1: power. Rachel Notley was working in British Columbia at the time. But roll the clock forward, Rachel moves back to Alberta, and opportunity comes knocking. By that point,
0: uh, when we moved back to Alberta from BC, at that point, my husband and I almost immediately started talking about the fact that I would likely run. Um, And so, uh, and our kids uh, at that point were um, one and a half and three and a half and uh, and we knew that I would likely run in the area where that we moved to just because that's that had been my home when I'd you know gone to university here and and all that kind of stuff and and so that's what I identified as home and uh, um, and and so it was just a question of when it would happen uh, and there was a very popular NDP MLA one of two in the province who already held the seat and to some degree the timing was defined by how long he was going to stay on um, and uh, Honestly, if he had agreed to stay on another four years, probably would have been better for me. I I would have been just as happy for that to happen um, so that my kids could have been a bit older. But when he decided to step down, I I knew that that was the opportunity to win the nomination uh, or not. Um, So we made that decision and... uh, um, We basically decided we would uh, because I grew up in politics. I believed that certainly the job of being an MLA was something that I could do while still uh, being present for my kids, and I think that was true. Um, So, so that's basically uh, that's basically how it went.
1: In October 2006, Rachel Notley was nominated as the NDP candidate in the riding of Edmonton Strathcona, and then on March 3rd, 2018, she was elected securing 49.3% of the vote. Now it's important to note, this is a province with a long history of conservative governments. The Social Credit Party governed from 1935 to 1971, and then was replaced with another marathon rule from the progressive conservatives from 1971 up to this point. So I asked Rachel, when you ran to become an NDP MLA, did you ever imagine that it would be the first step towards becoming the premier?
0: Absolutely not. I okay. did not think that was the plan. No, I, I, I honestly didn't. I, uh, I uh, thought it was an opportunity to um, um, make some changes through advocacy as an opposition member, um, and I thought it was an opportunity to build uh, the future of the NDP in Alberta uh, so that we would have more influence, Um, but I honestly at that time did not think about um, leading it, nor did I think about becoming premier at that
1: point. Well, buckle up, because this story does not go according to the plan. Notley ran again in 2012, this time securing more than 62% of the vote elected as one of four NDP MLAs. And by the time they were halfway through the term, the leader announced he was stepping down. So once again, opportunity knocked. Well, that was a much harder decision to make, actually.
0: It was an easy decision to run. Running to be leader um, was not as easy a decision uh, because I did know how much more of a a job that was. And I knew that it was... uh, um, very not only time-consuming, but that uh, the buck always was going to stop with you. That that the future of the party was on your shoulders. The the, the effectiveness of the caucus is on your shoulders. The um and and that frankly, the day could never end when you're the leader, right? If you if you do the job well enough and you care enough about it, there's no reason for you not to be working 23 out of every 24 hours, seven days a week. And and of course, how do you do that while balancing um uh? things with your kids and, and your family. And so it was a much tougher decision. There was a lot of people that really pressured me uh, over the course of about 18 months uh, to, to do it. And I started with a definite no and uh, slowly moved into um, a maybe and then eventually um, a yes. Um, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't an easy decision. And I talked to my kids about it um, before... Uh, when I finally decided that I would give it serious consideration, um, I had to have a long conversation with my kids to see if they were okay with it. And they said they were, although I, I think it's fair to say that when I subsequently became premier a mere eight months after I became leader, um, they had had no idea what they saying yes to me being leader really meant. Um but nonetheless uh, had that conversation with my husband of course was one of the people pressuring me to to run so that was the position that he was taking there so um so yeah so it was a, it was a tough decision but um one that I ultimately took. And I think there was a period of time where I thought, well, things are are really um, volatile in in Alberta right now and I can uh, run and and lead the party and probably give it the best result that it ever would have. And then there would be enough other people in play that I could step back and and pass it on to someone to take it to the next stage. Because I think in the fall of 2014, no one was expecting that we were going to be doing a run for government.
1: If you follow Alberta politics at all, you will know that this is exactly what ended up happening. It was pretty insane because um,
0: I, got, uh, I got elected uh, on October um, 18th of 2014. Um, the next day was the anniversary of my dad's plane crash. And I still remember the day after um, that being at this, this 30-year um, sort of memorial for my dad the day after I'd become the leader. And, and it seemed, and there was a massive group of people there and it seemed very historic. What we had thought was that because the, the next election was supposed to be in the spring of 2016. And, and so we thought, okay, well, we got a year and a half now to slowly method, methodically do the work to get the party ready. And, uh, uh, when I was elected, um, we were already about a week into four by-elections that uh, uh, Premier Prentice had called. We didn't win, but uh, we bumped up our percentage quite substantially in a in a area that one wouldn't expect us to win in. So it it was a, a modest gain. Uh, and the night of that of all those by-elections, uh, Premier Prentice, I think it was that night, was talking uh, and giving a speech. And the next morning, I was listening to it, and I remember. Uh, speaking to the uh, provincial secretary of our party at that point, saying, listen to this, that guy is not going to wait till 2016. He's going to call the election in the next six months, just watch. And so we'd all been so tired getting our dragging our way through our own leadership race and getting to that whole process and getting ready to go into session and dealing with these four by-elections, because we were a very small party at that point. And suddenly it was oh my gosh, we have at most six months to get ready for an election. And so we just had to jump right into it and start looking for candidates and, and uh, fundraising and doing all that work that that when you're a caucus of four to be ready for a, an election where there's 87 candidates and a, a you know province-wide campaign uh, where the other guys are going to spend I think they did spend between five and ten million dollars and at the time I think we had about fifty thousand dollars in our bank account and it was, it was ridiculous so we just like I can it was it, I can barely remember it actually because we worked so hard every day just trying to get everything in place. Maybe 2 months before the election we started getting more optimistic. So even though we were working 24/7, we were starting to see we were ticking up, things were looking good and we we're like, "Oh, yeah, I think we're going to be official opposition. This is pretty cool. This is looking good. I think we might actually hit 15 seats, you know, and we were all having a great old time. So it was a really fun campaign because everything looked like we were going to do much better than we ever had before. And and we were the little engine that could. And, you know, it was very positive. And, and uh, we just, but it was a very small campaign, even at the end of the day. Um, so it was much fun, very tiring. But at that point, it was all good news. Obviously, when you go from a party of four, Uh, seats and being at 10% in the polls to being at 40% of the polls, obviously the road to that is mostly filled with good news, right? (laughs) So it was, it allowed us to get through the exceptionally long days and um, all that stuff.
1: It was a week before the election. Rachel was in a hotel room and the poll numbers were telling a very positive story. For the first time in Alberta's history, the NDP was projected to win. This would also mean a big change for Rachel, becoming the premier of Alberta. I asked her, "What did it feel like to envision yourself as the premier?"
0: Oh, it's horrifying. I was, I, I was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> no. I mean, it it, 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 was, it was, it was, because because we only had, we went into it, we had a. a, a, a just a hardworking crew of about eight staff people, um, you know, in our caucus before, uh, before, uh, the campaign started and, and myself and three other MLAs who had, had been in the house. And then the idea of, of taking over the government, uh, I mean, we, we, it was, we just weren't sure how we were going to be able to, um, uh, manage the levers of power with such a small, um, cadre of, of, uh, of a team the the complexity and the depth of the issues that suddenly we had to address and uh yes we had elected uh you know 50 other great MLAs but but uh, very little experience among them all you know really smart people really wonderful humans but not people that had signed up to be in many cases MLAs let alone sign up to be ministers and um uh so um it was just quite overwhelming. It was really a very, very overwhelming time. And, and honestly, there, there, there was a point when I looked at uh, how Alison Redford had left office and what that was like for her uh, that I thought to myself, good Lord, please don't let me be driven out of this
1: office on the end of a pointy stick the way she was. As it turned out, May 5th, 2015 was a historic night in Alberta. The NDP swept, winning 54 of 87 seats. With 41% of the popular vote, Rachel Notley became the second woman to become the Premier of Alberta after Alison Redford, and the hard work of governing began. One of Notley's first actions in office was to appoint a cabinet, and it was the first gender-balanced cabinet in Alberta and in Canada.
0: That night in October, when I sat down with the provincial secretary and said, Oh my Lord, we we have six months to put together a campaign, and one of the uh, things we have to do is find 87 candidates. And I right at that point, I said... And let me be very clear, we will run uh, 44 or more candidates who are women. And don't even think of coming to me with a a, uh, roster of candidates that do not fit that description. Um, And so that was, I was emphatic about that. And so when I set about to um, appointing my cabinet, it was the same thing. Uh, This cabinet will consist of 50% women. That is all there is to it. Everyone was, I remember everyone uh, sort of speculating about who I would put into cabinet. And they were like, well, you couldn't possibly put put uh, uh, this person because she's obviously seven months pregnant. And uh, I was like, <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah, no, there she is. She's there at the, at the uh, swearing in. Right there, seven months pregnant. She sure is getting sworn into cabinet. And oh, by the way, the other woman being sworn in, she's actually three months pregnant. And uh, she's coming in too. Guess what? Albertans get pregnant. And uh, therefore, uh, it's not unreasonable that periodically uh, people of that description will find themselves uh, leading the province.
1: So let's talk about leading the province. What was it like to be the premier as a woman? I think there are many, many factors
0: uh, about the way politics is done that um, makes it harder for women um, to be... Um, politicians and and so for instance when I go back to the the description of those those two women that came into cabinet one of them at a certain point uh, and, and then actually a third one ultimately also our, our attorney general also ultimately um, after she was in cabinet uh, got pregnant and, and had a baby and um, um, you know at least one of them was quite open about the fact that it was very hard to actually be uh, a mother of a new baby and be in cabinet so, and, and that's because of what the expectations and the demands are of someone who's in politics. And so, uh, and that goes across um, party lines. It's the way we do politics that makes it hard, I think, in some cases for women. Um, so for me, um, it's hard to say how much of it was because I was a woman um, and how much of it was because I was New Democrat who was trying to be, uh, make some quite a large amount of progressive changes within a province that at the same time was going through an unprecedented um, uh, challenge with respect to job losses and an economic recession. Um, So what I will say is that the people that were most overt at critiquing me tended to be men But what I will say is that my own experiences day to day uh, when I was premier, um, even during the toughest times, women would consistently and regularly come to me and say, don't listen to what they're saying. And they say it really quietly. Don't listen to what they're saying. You're doing a great job. You make me so proud. But on a couple of occasions, I walked into, uh, you know, public places where a group of 15 guys who had been drinking would stand up and start booing. And that's just what it looked like. It never looked like that with women. Um, So would they have done it to a
1: guy? You'll have to ask them. It was a busy time with lots of policy changes underway. I actually still believe that we need to be very um,
0: uh, uh, aggressive and active on combating climate change. And the plan that we came up with in Alberta actually led the federal government. Um, and it, and they would not have been able to do what they did in terms of going to Paris and making the commitments that they did, had we not, uh, brokered the deal that we did in Alberta, um, in terms of our climate leadership plan. And, uh, and so, uh, as much as that ultimately, and the the carbon levy that the carbon tax that was part of it, uh, was something that the opposition used very effectively against us. Um, it is still, um, a series of policy initiatives that i think were the right ones and actually demonstrated how you can do these things make uh, uh progress on on combating climate change and still maintain um you know economic uh, sustainability the decision to reject it was a political one it wasn't an economic one obviously we also did some you know, great stuff on, uh, on workers' rights, you know, leading the country, frankly, the continent on the minimum wage. Um, and I'm very, very proud of that. Uh, you know, we, we cut the rate of child poverty in half in Alberta, um, over the course of what was the most difficult economic period that the province has been through in, in a couple of decades, at least, uh, we have the lowest rate of child poverty, um, in the country. And, uh, um, and, you know, we did that while we were struggling more than, than others. And so I'm very proud of
1: that. So let's cut to the chase. The 2019 election. What happened? It was frustrating in many respects because, of course, the other, the, the, probably the most
0: critical challenge that we wrestled with and that we worked on the most throughout. Our time even as I talk about those other achievements was the matter of job creation and and uh you know uh, supporting Alberta's energy industry uh so that we could continue you know bring jobs back because we we did we I mean at one point uh you know we lost easily 150,000 jobs in this province probably more and um and uh we also were in a position where frankly the 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 state of Alberta's energy industry was dragging down economic prosperity for the rest of the country as well. And that's not going to change if we don't get a handle on this. Um, So we worked and we worked and we worked on it. And uh, when we were able to, when, when uh, uh, the federal government approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline, that was that was good news, and when we got them to buy the pipeline, and that was some hard nosed negotiating, that was good news, and we saw the economy ticking up, and we saw jobs being created, and we saw people's sense of optimism really growing, uh, in, um, in the, uh, summer of an, an early fall of 2018. And in a way I kind of wish we could have almost called the election then. Um, but then what happened was the, uh, the pipeline decision, uh, was overturned. Um, and we had to go back to the, uh, back to the books on that. And that, uh, the issue of the pipeline, it became symbolic of, of, our economic health and people's ability to get jobs and take care of their families. It became a stand-in for that. And so when that decision was delayed um, in late August of 2018, and then we came into this process where we ran out of ability to ship our product, and the world was getting, you know, paying, uh, you know, $50 a barrel for oil, and Albertans and through us Canadians were getting $8 a barrel because we had no way to move the product. Well, then um, what happened was the economy slowed and people got very anxious and very nervous. And so it was a hard time for us because we had committed to calling the election um, in the spring. But we knew that, that the mood um, and the sense of optimism that we so needed Albertans to have... Had, had shifted again uh, and and they continued and they remained and do remain very, very worried about their jobs. So that was the struggle that we had going into uh, the, the spring. And um, and we knew we were going to be up against it because, you know, when that many people lose their jobs, even as I think we'd made the right moves and we saved a lot of jobs and we did create a lot of jobs, it still wasn't enough. And, um, and so we knew we were going to be the, rightfully the people that, Most folks uh, look to 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 blame. That's that's what you do when you worry about making your mortgage payments, right? You you blame the folks who are in charge. So,
1: the NDP lost the election with Jason Kenney's United Conservatives taking 63 of 87 seats. Rachel's story fits a concerning pattern in Canadian politics that we've been highlighting on this podcast. History has shown us that women as leaders tend to last about half as long as men do. And when they run for re-election, they lose. It's a very perplexing pattern. I asked Rachel, to what extent do you think the result had anything to do with you being a woman?
0: I absolutely believe that gender is um, a a problem for uh, uh, women in politics. I mean, I I think that it is harder for women in politics. So I will not ever be the one that says, oh, gender is not an issue. But the fact that I am a woman in this particular circumstance was probably not the driving issue um, for what happened uh, to my party and my government in the last election. I will say, uh, because of what was going on with Alberta's politics, what people really wanted was a fighter, and they wanted someone who was tough. So it is possible that people, because I'm a woman, people didn't see me as being tough enough.
1: Why do you think we don't see women last in leadership roles the way we see with men? One thing that we're seeing
0: across the board, uh, male or female, right now in politics is that almost no government is lasting (laughs) more than one term right now. So if you look at, for instance, when I think about when I started going to the Council of the Federation, um, I think there's uh, one premier uh, that Um, is there from when I first got elected, which was uh, Stephen McNeil from Nova Scotia. Every other premier has lost their job, male or female. So there is, uh, you know, um, some people have talked about, you know, sort of the the Amazon phenomena. People, uh, if they don't like their government, they just want to click and order a new one. Um, So that, I think we have to take that into account. But that being said, there is no question that the number of women who uh, get to being in the position of being a leader, whether it be for four years or eight or 12, is far below the number of men. And and the reason for that is, again, as I've said before, it's because there's certain features to politics that make it harder for women. I mean, women we know uh, are caregivers in the family. They do more work at home. Um, and uh, politics is a job that requires you to be um, available at uh, um unpredictable hours um, for long hours away from home. Um it is a job that requires you to sort of leap into the breach and put yourself into the public eye uh with uh you know, and, and just cross your fingers and hope that it, there's no blowback against you or the people that, that you love. Um, it is a, uh, um, very, it's an unpredictable line of work. Um, and so all those things, uh, just on their own, make it less likely that, that women who tend to shoulder, uh, the responsibility of the security and the, uh, um, tenure of the family, um, find I think more as a, more of a barrier, um, then it's aggressive, you know, it's very aggressive politics, you know, it's, it's very fighty. Um, and people also fight with you and, um, I don't, and, and that's across all lines that's left and right. There's, you know, the, the left's no better on that than the right is. Um, and so, uh, that's another thing where I think, uh, women are either pushed out or they choose not to ascend to, uh, or seek to ascend to positions of leadership because that's not the way they want to do things.
1: Rachel Notley's defeat as premier left zero women. That's right. Zero. As first ministers in Canada. She was quite literally the last woman standing. I asked Rachel, what do you think is the impact of this? Oh, I, I think it's, I, I think it's, uh, really,
0: really unfortunate because there is a difference, um, between uh, men and women in terms of the public policy initiatives that they prioritize. I mean, that that's actually a thing. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things that I fought very hard, and I will tell you that if I hadn't been, that, that I think my gender does play uh, a role in this, in that... Um, uh, we wouldn't have made this our priority. But when we ran in the last election in 2019, we set aside in our budget uh, up to, over time, uh, I think it was $600 million a year that we were going to spend to bring in full $25 a day high-quality childcare to anybody who needed it across the province. That is not a thing that uh, I believe um, a male premier will Go to the mat for, and yet it's so important to women, and it's also important to this issue of how many, how easily women can then continue to ascend to positions of leadership, whether it be in politics or academia or business or anywhere. Um, It's 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 fundamental. I mean, it's a building block. As much as there are more and more men taking on more and more responsibility uh, in the family, the research is is incontrovertible that. Women continue to be the ones that uh, uh, bear the majority of the work when it comes to the family in Canada. And so that will always draw from their ability uh, to ascend to leadership positions in other parts of society until you find a way to make that stop happening. Apart from uh, Andrea and me, uh, and and now my apologies to any woman who I'm missing. Um, but on the provincial level, I don't know if there's another female official opposition leader in terms of who's even waiting in the wings. You know, it's not like this, this all-male um, bachelor uh, episode uh, is going to end anytime soon.
1: Okay, let's talk about solutions. So what do we do about it? Well, you know, I think for
0: for years and years and years, people have been talking about the need to get women involved in politics, and th- there is a school of thought that all you need to do is is reach out and be more encouraging, and, and we need to talk about it and raise awareness. But quite frankly, that's what we've been doing for decades, and we haven't really moved the dial, and and so we need to uh, look very hard at the kinds of things that bar women from participating. There are common characteristics or common features of being involved in politics that that are uh, non-partisan in nature that put up barriers to women uh, participating as much as we'd like to see them. But there are also features of a political activity which are in fact partisan in nature, uh, where some parties put up more barriers than other parties. And, uh, and I do think it's a right-left thing. And, and uh, I know that hasn't been your theme going through this, but I do think that if we don't identify those things, we leave about 60% of the solutions to the problem off the table. And, and we owe it to ourselves to look at the whole range of solutions. Um, so, for instance, this whole notion where I said, we're not running a, a, a team of politicians who aren't 50% women, um, as an example. But so going back to what happened with the UCP, I mean, it was it was horrible to see uh, the treatment uh, that both uh, Donna Kennedy Glands and uh, Sandra Jansen were subjected to. It was it was offensive, and what I can say without question is that under no circumstances would that ever have happened in our party. I think we need to talk about these things, and and uh, I think that. Uh, women who suggest that it's not an issue um, do the cause of, of women in politics and injustice. I'm a huge advocate for uh, public childcare, and I'm not ever going to stop talking about it. And I honestly think that if we had high-quality, low-cost, um, affordable um, public childcare, that about ten years later, you would see the number of women involved in politics shoot up in a in an incredible way. Um, in term, internally more to politics, what we need to do is try to find ways to make um, politics more family-friendly. Uh, uh, when we were in government, for instance, we brought in morning sittings uh, in an effort to stop night sittings. Uh, <laughs> what the new government is doing is they've decided to bring night sittings back and not get rid of morning sittings. So now what we're looking at is potentially 12-hour days every day that we're in the legislature. As you can imagine... If you're a working mom, this is a problem, um, and uh, so, but you know that. So that's what they're doing um but what we need to do is is within the work of politics is find ways to very uh, meaningfully support women where there's child care issues we need to find ways to support them where women have to leave their homes in order to travel to the place where where the government sits we should as a matter of course look to ways to provide support to them and their families for that to happen we don't do that people say oh well you know that's just a a, a you know politician feathering their own nest well no it's not it's it's that it, uh it's different for a woman than a man to participate in politics and if we're going to have more women participate we need to make it uh manageable for them um uh we should uh call people out for bullying and and we should definitely call people out uh and challenge people to question the degree to which their judgment of someone's intellect or strength or combativeness where necessary is um, a a function of their gender. Um, So we can more aggressively challenge people on their views. And I think that is something that happens now, but we don't do it enough. But I also think that we need to do the kinds of things that I talked about. And then I think that parties ultimately have to make a commitment to nominating a slate of candidates that consists 50% of women. At the end of the day, we are not going to have fifty percent elected women if we don't have fifty percent women running, and it's the parties that make that decision. And I know that sound that is uh, that is um, uh, controversial, but uh, in in jurisdictions where that basically works, you know, in the in the uh, proportional representation jurisdictions, it's a lot easier for that to work. You see that in. Uh, the Scandinavian countries where you see women participating at least at 50% rates. And it's because the, the, the gatekeepers to politics, which are the political parties, have systems within which they say, we are going to make sure that we run a, a balanced slate of candidates. And um, until you do that you are not gonna have a balanced slate of candidates. There is a 30% differential between what men earn and women earn. There is a huge differential in the amount of hours in any day that women work and men work, uh, whether it's paid or not paid. And you're not gonna get uh, an equal number of women coming forward unless you create the system that requires an equal number of women to come forward. So that's what I think, and then you'll make the changes. And then soon
1: enough, you won't have to make it a requirement anymore. It'll just happen. Final question, Rachel. I know some people felt discouraged watching the election results in Alberta. It's yet another story of no second chances for women in Canadian political leadership roles. So what would you say to someone who might be feeling discouraged hearing this story? Well,
0: I guess it goes back to what I was uh, talking about at the very beginning. You know, if you believe in something and you and you think that it's going to make a real difference in the lives of people, um, just focus on on fighting for it and and working for it. Um, don't get so far ahead of yourself that you paralyze yourself from taking action. Just focus on 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 fighting for it. Um, doesn't mean that you don't be strategic about getting to that end goal, uh, but at the same time. Don't let that stop you from uh, taking the first step and getting involved Um, because this is something that's really important. And I think that the ability of women to take their rightful place in leadership positions uh, depends, as a matter of right and as a matter of course, uh, depends on uh, um, women to uh, demand uh, their rightful place and to work hard for it even when it looks like um, they're up against long odds.
1: We'll leave it there today. Thanks to Rachel Notley for sharing her story and some solutions. Yes, solutions. Only 4% of Canada's First Ministers have been women, meaning 96% have been men, and mostly older, straight, white, affluent men. Women remain severely underrepresented in all levels of Canadian politics, particularly in leadership roles. So how do we change this? What needs to happen if we want to see more women lead? June 19th, 2019 is going to be a very important day. We're having a No Second Chances event in Ottawa. It will be the largest gathering of female First Ministers in Canadian history. And we'll be talking about the future. We'd love to have you there. All of the details are at nosecondchances.ca or by visiting the Canada 2020 website. There we'll be gathering input from thought leaders, academics, media, politicians and more for our next episode, which is going to focus on how we make Canadian politics a place that is full of second chances for women. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, you can subscribe and learn more about this project at nosecondchances.ca. Coming up on No Second Chances.
0: Watching women not getting reelected after the one term. Uh, you know, and in some cases you could say, okay, well, that's the, the mood and that's the way the election would go, whether it was a, a male leader or, or, or a woman leader. But I think what we're seeing here is kind of one by one by one, fabulous and, and talented women premiers have just kind of been picked off. I think it's very difficult to say that there isn't, um, you know, that gender is not playing a role in that uh, somewhere. And I think it's something that people should be paying attention to. Uh, and should be studied more. I see it as a problem uh, in our national politics. Now, there was a time when if someone had said something like this, it would have been seen as radical. But I don't think it's radical. I don't think it's radical uh, to want women to be at the table. I don't think it's radical
1: to want visible minorities to be in the conversation.
0: I think there's a role for for uh, women speaking truth to power that simply wasn't there before and wasn't acknowledged before in the way it will be acknowledged
1: now. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yellenos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. And this project would not be possible without the support of MasterCard.